God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Moon, thank you for asking me to lead. It is an honor and a privilege. Um, this was one of the first meetings I went to when I first got sober. This used to be a smoking and a non-smoking meeting, and the way that they separated the smokers from the non-smokers was uh, a side of the, this was smoking and this was non-smoking. So Sarah would be non-smoking and you guys would be smoking. <clears throat> and that was totally normal. Um, and I'm grateful for this basement because I got sober in these rooms, especially Cleveland Heights AA. Um, Kevin, I love you so much. The two people that I'm the closest to in all of AA are in this room tonight. And um, they're the two people who have changed my life the most dramatically because of the steps. Both of you guys. Um, my sobriety day is January 27th, 1999. My home group is Practical Experience. It's on Thursday night. If you guys are free, we would love to have you at 8 o'clock down the road. Um, I have sponsors. I have sponsees. I am very active in the 12 steps because it saved my life. Um, I'm going to tell you how I got here. I can tell you this very clearly. When I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous at 19, almost 20, dying of an alcoholic death, I needed these rooms and there was nowhere else for me to go. And at 38, with a full, beautiful, rich life, I have nowhere else to go. And if I don't do this work every single day, I will have nowhere else to go. Um, and I will destroy everyone's life around me. I'm just going to take you right into the the good stuff. So I introduce myself as a recovered alcoholic because I am. Uh, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about it very, very clearly. It's actually the first thing that is mentioned in the entire book before pages happen. It talks about how this is the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And they later talk about recovered from alcoholism and they make it very clear that it's from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I'm going to tell you how that happened to me, but when I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, my body physically could not go without alcohol. I needed alcohol to, to live. I couldn't not drink alcohol. I physically craved it because I had it in my body and I needed more of it. And when I tried to not drink, my mind told me the lie that I had to drink and that it was my only solution. And that it never told me it was my problem. Other people told me it was my problem, but my mind in... My truth was that alcohol was my solution. So I had a body that couldn't physically process alcohol, and I had a mind that believed that it needed to. And when I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not control myself in any way, and I was completely hopeless, and I saw no other way out. I'm going to tell you how I got there. Um, I'm in Cleveland Heights AA tonight, thank God, and my parents just celebrated 26 years of sobriety. And it's really sad, Thursday Night Adult's gone, but I, I came to the rooms of AA through Thursday Night Adult, and they were at that meeting until last year. Um, I was 13 when my parents got sober, and I was 12 when I started drinking, and we missed each other. I was introduced to AA, I was introduced to picnics, I was introduced to Alateen and Al-Anon and Al-Family, and... Um, and I was just reading about this in the family afterward with my girls today doing Big Book about how the one time one path that new alcoholics take is that they throw themselves heavily into sobriety so much so that that's all they do and i was telling them that that was what my parents said you know they weren't around when i was drinking when they were drinking and then they weren't around when they got sober because they were super active in aa and 
I have to remember, because um, I have children today, that I have a responsibility to be here, and it's my job to hold my hand out to the new person. But I also have this army of women and men that I've built that I also get to show up for my family today. And it's not just about being in these rooms. So how did this all happen? Um, when I put alcohol in my body for the first time, I was nine. I got trashed, because I was nine. And um, it was on... Manischewitz, and I pantsed myself in front of the whole table um, at a Jewish holiday, and there were pictures, and it was awesome. And um, it was silly that Carly was drunk. And um, I heard this guy in AA speak, and he said he didn't start drinking until he was 12. And I love the way he phrased it, because that's how I felt. Because when I finally started regularly getting drunk, I felt like, Jesus, why didn't anyone offer this to me before? Like, I've had to go, I had to go to, like, kindergarten and, like, all that elementary school without anything. And that's how I felt. So when I started drinking, um, I always describe it like this. I felt like I was drinking liquid neon and I had my my go-go boots on and my glitter and my boas. And I was, like, a rock star superhero. And I had the best time ever. I loved what alcohol did for me. And if you would have stopped me anytime ten at 15, 16, 17 and been like, Carly, this is about to go real south, real quick, real bad. Things are going to get dark and scary. I would have told you to get out of my way and swore at you and never talk to you again. Um, what alcohol did for me, the effect that I chased in the beginning was it made me not feel all the uncomfortable feelings I had, and it made me feel super awesome. And the effect that I was physically chasing at my end was I wanted to feel nothing. I didn't even want to feel joy. I just wanted to not feel. And the communication I had with the higher power at, by the time I was 19 at Ohio University, dying of full-blown late-stage alcoholism, was I would... Before I passed out, I would say, please don't let me wake up in the morning. And I spent the, la the, the last year and a half of my drinking daily thinking about suicide. In and out of psychiatric offices, in and out of medication, in and out of psychologists, searching for an answer on uh, the dean's list every single quarter because I had to keep my outsides looking good, in crazy relationships where we had crazy rules and... Um, I kept drawing lines in the sand for things I wasn't going to ever do, and I kept moving them quietly at the nighttime when no one was looking to make sure no one knew about it. And I was living a life that, to me, seemed normal because I made it that way, but it was insane, and I could barely breathe, and I wanted out. And I didn't want to not drink. I just didn't want to live anymore. <clears throat> My mom did not listen to anyone in the rooms who told her to leave her daughter alone. She never stopped bothering me about sobriety. And she was seven years sober when I was at my end. And she gave me some test that's in, supposedly in these books. And she said, can you go, she made up like a, a month or three weeks. She, can you go a month or three weeks without putting anything in your body? And I was like, of course I can. Um, because I can do anything I set my mind to. And at that time, I could. I could, get an, I could get any relationship I wanted. I could become any size I wanted. I could get any part in theater I wanted. I could get any grade I wanted. I could get out of any situation I wanted. So why wouldn't I be able to do this? I'll be fine. Sure, if that's going to get you to stop talking to me about your AA slogans, then fine. And what I found out was I was physically able to put down alcohol. 
And so a couple of things happen. Like day three or four, I physically no longer have alcohol running through my body. So when I want to drink, it's not because I'm craving alcohol. It's because my mind is very uncomfortable and only knows one solution when I'm uncomfortable. And I, this is what happens in my mind. I'm starting to feel really uncomfortable. Like my chest is on fire. Like when I'm crossing the street, in, I was at Ohio University, I'm crossing the street and all these happy like frat people are walking around and someone like comes too close to me with their car. I, I stare them down and I want to like attack them. And this, I'm a suicide girl, so I don't get homicidal. And now without alcohol, I am. I can't sleep anymore. I can't take classes anymore. I can't read anymore. I'm depressing. I'm depressive. Nobody wants to be around. Crazy Carly's gone. And without alcohol in my body, I'm more suicidal, more angry. I feel completely out of control. And my mind tells me a couple of things. See, you're not a real alcoholic. Real alcoholics can't go five days without drinking. See, you're not a real alcoholic. Real alcoholics can't go a week without drinking, and you did. See, you're not a real alcoholic because without alcohol, you're more suicidal than with alcohol. So you're real, you took away the problem. Alcohol's gone. So the real problem is you're not on the right medication. And you need to find a better doctor, and you need to find a better medication. And since you're so uncomfortable and nobody wants to be around you because you're so boring and down, just have a couple of drinks so you'll feel better until you get on the right medication. And without alcohol in my body, three weeks, no alcohol, my mind, which I was later told is called the mental obsession, which is a thought that blacks out all other thoughts, tells me the lie that I'm going to feel better when I pick up a drink. And I, I kid you not, before alcohol is in my body, when I'm pouring the whiskey in what are those stupid cups that are like red that you drink? Yes, thank you. Yeah, you those drinking cups. And um, before I put it in my body, I feel relief because I know what it's going to do for me. And my mind tells me without anything in my body, the lie that I'm going to feel better. And I believe that lie. And as soon as I put it in my body, it's like a reunion. It's like what you feel like when you had to get out of the pool because like a phone call came and you're freezing and you jump back in the pool and it's so warm. That's how I felt when I started drinking again. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to not drink again. Like I'm never going to do that. That's horrible. And this feels so much better and I'm so much more enjoyable and everybody loves being around me like this. And then this feels so good. I need like 17 more. And then, and that's how I drank. Like I didn't like, I don't even know when I got married the first time, someone gave us like a wine stopper. And I was like, what is that for? <laughs> and like that was foreign to me. Like the wine stopper was the end of the bottle. And I drank in large amounts. Like I would, I would go to shooters because we had fake IDs before you. They were like really good back then. And I would line up all my shots and I would slam them down. And I needed it fast, fast, fast. And as soon as it was in my body, I needed more. And what happened was I would come to at like 1 p.m. the next day and I would do the walk of shame in like a fancy, disgusting, ugly outfit in the sun, home with like mascara. And I hated myself and I didn't know who I woke up next to. And I looked in the mirror and I hated myself and nobody wanted to talk to me. And I promised myself I was never gonna live like this again. And I said, I can't, it's the drinking, I can't drink anymore. And I would set again on that course where I wouldn't drink. And on that course, I became 
that person who I couldn't breathe and I felt like I was on fire. The book calls it restless, irritable, and discontent. I couldn't live in my own skin. I felt, I remember telling this one of my professors when I was in theater there, I felt like my insides were dying and it felt physical. And I would go, I would string together a couple of days or a week and then my mind would tell me, I can't live like this anymore. It would either convince me that it was gonna get better or I would say forget it, but not in nice words. And that was what happened, was that's alcoholism. Alcoholism has nothing to do with how much I drink, how long I drink, how often I drink. It only is about when I put alcohol in my body, can I control the amount I drink? For me, no, I cannot. There are sometimes I can on purpose. If Kevin wants to make sure I'm behaving like a good girl, I can drink with him two drinks. On Wednesday night, I can drink with him two drinks. On Thursday night, he tells all the friends, Carly's good, I drink with her, she's fine. And on Friday night, I call Sarah and we finish the job. I physically, once I have alcohol in my body, I have an abnormal reaction and I need more. It's been proven since this beautiful book was written that we actually have a different chemical makeup to what happens to our bodies when we put alcohol in it. If that was my only problem, then that whole idea about don't drink and go to meetings would be awesome. However, when I try to not drink and go to meetings, the problem I have when I'm sitting in these rooms is my mind. And my mind tells me the lie, what are you doing here? These are losers. This is your parents' program. You're young, you're being dramatic. Everyone's overly excited. It's not that big of a deal. You're fine. You can just do this, or maybe if you just do that. My mind convinces me every single time to pick up a drink. That's called the mental obsession. So I can stop. I just can't stay stopped. Who couldn't stop? And I can stop. I just, my mind tells me that I need to start again. And I believe my mind because it's the only solution I have. So, my end. Um, after this period of multiple periods of cycles of miserable hell, I end up on January 20th, 1999. I'm in Athens, Ohio. There's an ice storm and it's a blackout. And there was like a five-day weekend, and we were playing spades for like days. Um, and I'd seen many, many doctors, and they were on many medications, and I was trying to not drink, and I couldn't stay sober. And I wanted to check myself into an institution because I was so scared and nothing was open. And I called this woman who was a director of a play I had been doing. We met at a coffee shop. I said, do you think I'm a drug addict? Because I didn't think I was an alcoholic because it was my parents' problem. And she said, I can't tell you what you are, but I'm going to an AA meeting across the street. If you want to come, you can. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. It's at 6 o'clock. And she got up and left. And I've always been attracted to that kind of sobriety. I mean, Kevin wouldn't admit that he was helping me for a year and a half. Like, we got in fights in parking lots every single time we went out. Because I was like, I need help. And he's like, I can't help you. And he was helping me the whole time. It was just a big, exhausting thing. But she got up and she left and I followed her. Somebody gave me a big book. You guys wrote your names and numbers. Somebody had the nerve to write, you're a perfect child of God in my big book. And I was like, oh my Lord, where have I ended up? This is, this is the lamest place on earth. And I, they asked me to read something, and I was like, I know this, because my parents are sober. And um, I finished the, Our Father. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't get a home group. I didn't talk about how I was going to get in touch with a higher power. I didn't talk about any steps. I didn't make any commitments other than I was told to not drink in between meetings and to come back the next night. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went home with my new big book. I called my parents in Cleveland. I told them I'm sober. Oh, yay, we've been praying for you. You're sober, great. 
And then I waited until 11 o'clock so I could go out with my friends. And I went to the bars that night and I told all the guys I was in relationships with that I was sober and all the people I was in business with that I was sober and all my people in theater I was with sober. And this is how Carly stays sober for the next six nights is I go to a meeting, I don't talk to anybody, I start to learn the lingo. You can learn the lingo real quick because we don't say anything new here. It's the same thing over at every single meeting. So I learned, yes, one day at a time. And I didn't have a sponsor, I didn't have a support system, I didn't have a higher power, I didn't work any steps, I didn't drink and I went to meetings. And um, every single night I would go home and I would wait until it was time to go out and I would go to the bar and I would drink a Diet Coke and smoke cigarettes and talk about how great sobriety was. And my mom asked me how I was doing, and I told her, it's great. You know, I go to meetings, and I have some time to do my homework, and then I go to parties or the bar, and I'm fine. And she's like, if you go to our barber shop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. And my mom, like, literally only talked to me in magnets. Like, refrigerator slogans was all I could handle. And I thought she was, oh, okay, whatever. And the sixth night, I had spent $12 before I got sober at the Swindlefish to go to see a show. I think it was, like, Galactics. I whatever and I, my apartment was here in three blocks away from my apartment on court street was the swindle fish and when i got sober in 1999 it was not a clean athens was not clean like it is now there was just bars and my boyfriend was on a date um and we had an open relationship so that was a little sobriety threatening um and i went I was walking with these two girls and I had said no to what they were offering me and I was crying and I remember wanting to drink the alcohol I saw in the backwash of the bottles and I remember wanting to kill myself and this is six days sober. I no longer physically have alcohol in my body and the fact that I want alcohol and that I would take these two girls' heads and I would smash them together if it meant I could drink, that I would. And I went to the bar and I went in the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I knew for a fact that at 19 and a half years old, I was either going to kill myself or I was going to overdose. And that I'm never, if this is sobriety, I'm out. And I walked home and I ran home and I was crying and I opened up my big book with your stupid names and numbers and it was 1.30 in the morning and I was like, you guys don't even know who I am. I'm not calling you. You say, it says, call me anytime. And I'm like, there, nobody wants me to call. And there was a, there was drugs on the table and there was a bottle of vodka in the freezer and I, when my boyfriend came home from his date, I completely sober without any alcohol in my body. I ran in the bathroom and I rummaged through the cabinets and I pulled all the bottles down and I swallowed about 90 pills and I laid on the floor and I waited to die. Um, I know for a fact that I wanted out. I know I wasn't doing a cry for help. I tried to kill myself. I also know that God intervened. And there was a voice inside me as I was laying on the red bathroom rug that said, Carly, if you don't call for help, you're going to die here. And my boyfriend was in the other room, and I started calling him for help. And he came in, and he saw me on the floor, and all the bottles were empty. And the paramedics came, and the ambulance, and the police yelled at me, and they don't like overdoses in Athens, Ohio. And my arms were all black and blue and bloody because they stick you up and down. And they put a tube down my throat, and I got my stomach pumped, and I drank two bottles of charcoal. And I was like a wild beast animal. That, that was not my end. Um, I said, okay, I'm clean, I'm out, I'm ready to go, I want to go home. I got like a test tomorrow or something. And they're like, you lost all your rights as a human being to make any more decisions. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you're, you're not leaving until you pass a psych consult. But I was like, well, bring it on. And they're like, it's five in the morning. You have to wait till the you know, person comes in. I was like, well, can you call her? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, somebody needs to call my parents. And I was just 
so exhausting. I kept trying to take off my clothes and get on my real clothes, and I was like ripping my IVs out, and the the, the machines were beeping, and the doctor, ER doc, came in with the bag that the police had collected from my apartment, and he said, if it would have been 15 minutes later, there's nothing I could have done to revive you. And I was like, yeah, 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 well, I'm sure. And they put me in the ICU. I don't really talk about this part. I don't know what, maybe one day it'll come to me in my story. There was a woman, a nurse, who sat on my bed in the ICU because I was raising my arm above my head because it made my, me go flatline, so they would have to run in because I wanted to leave. And she was like, she was like, you don't have to live like this anymore. I personally think she was one of us, and I've never, ever found like the full circle to that story, but I believe that the universe gives us what we need when we need it, and... At that time, I didn't want to hear what she had to say. I signed myself out against medical advice. It was January 27, 1999. I was completely broken and lost. I went to the waiting room to bum a smoke so I could figure out my next plan. I was wearing shorts and flannels and tennis shoes, and I was a mile and a half away from my apartment, and it was snowing. And my next plan was to figure out like who I was going to lie to and con and, and get something from. And I wasn't done. And on that walk home, I was given what I learned in Chicago, which is one of the places I've been sober. It's called the gift of desperation. And on that walk home, I was tired and I was out of plans. And I had nowhere else I could go to, and I had no one else I could call up, and I had no one else that wanted to believe or hear my stories. And on that walk home was my bottom. I, this is not from the big book, but it's just my experience, strength, and hope. I personally believe we're all given bottoms again and again and again and again. And I really get uncomfortable when I'm at a funeral of a person in AA and I hear someone well-meaningly say, it was her time, God needed her. And I'm like, mm, that's not really true because she just left three children as orphans. And in my experience, God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free and sober so I can help other people. And so on that walk home, I was given this window of misery and depression and emptiness and nowhere else to go. And I was just desperate enough to call out and ask for help. And I did, and I called out, and I said, I don't know what to do. And the woman that had taken me to the coffee shop told me to get to a meeting without nice words. And that was my sobriety date, January 27th, 1999. And I wish I could say, let's say the Our Father. Um, everything has gone better since then, and I'm awesome. It didn't. Um, I, I am, it's still within me, and I'm working on it really hard. But I was the kind of girl who would spend a lot of time trying to not do anything. And I was the kid in school who would spend four hours writing a cheat sheet that's really, really small rather than just studying. And my parents and I have since talked about what it was like to be in a house with me as a teenager. And I was like, why didn't you ever like discipline or give me any structure or anything? Like, I had a curfew of 4 a.m. I, I, my, I had a curfew. I had to be home at four. And they were like, Carly, you were so exhausting to be in a room with that ultimately we would just say, fine, just stop talking. Just whatever you want, just stop. And that was like my MO. It was just like, I'm just going to keep going until you can't stand it anymore. And that's what I did. And that's what I did in AA. And I found, you know, here's my experience. We can find what we want to find in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I want to find the people that are working out of this book and that are living a life that's pretty guided and directed, I could find them. When I saw them, I steered clear of them. I found the people that said things like this. 
You didn't get sick overnight, Carly. You're not going to get well overnight. Why don't you just not worry about the steps and let the steps rise to meet you? Why don't you focus on 90 meetings in 90 days? You know, for, first things first, first step, first absolute, first year. You know, just take it easy. Your mind is all messed up right now. Just sit here and let us love you until we can love yourself. You can learn to love yourself. I'm not making fun of those things. Those are all well-meaning people in AA. Some of them are real alcoholics. Some of them are probably hard drinkers. But none of them came to me with the solution of Alcoholics Anonymous. They came to me with things they heard in treatment centers, and they came to me with things that they heard well-meaning sponsors of theirs tell them while they were suffering miserably for years and while they didn't do the work. And they only could pass on to me what they had. I found a sponsor who believed first step, first year. I was about four months sober, barely, like, my knuckles literally were white when they talk about white knuckling it. I was so miserable. I hated being sober. It was a chore to attend life. And I thought about suicide every single day of my first four months of sobriety. And I hung on to as much insanity as I possibly could. And my mom and I were on the phone and she's like, you're nasty sober. And I was like, what do you want from me now? She's like, you're just really resentful and angry. And I was like, look, you said you wanted me to be sober. Here I am. This is Carly sober. What do you want? And she threw down one of her lines. You guys might know my mom is like this nice, like blonde lady that looks nice. She is tough. And she will hit you in the head with a two by four. She'll throw like a mattress on the ground. So like when you fall, you don't crack your head. But she does not mince words. And she's like, are you going to do the steps to get better? Or are you going to wait to get better and then do the steps? Like click. And then I got resentful enough that I, when I came back to Cleveland and I, she introduced me to the sponsor she picked out for me, which I was never going to work with. By the way, if you're in AA and you have a, a sponsor in mind for your family member or friend, don't tell them because that's the last person, that's like your mom picking out your prom dress. And so my mom introduced me to this really nice woman and I said, I'll take her. And this, this was an angry girl with a big book and she saved my life. She took me through this big book, word by word, highlight, underline, dictionary. Carly, write that down. No, write it down exactly how I just told you to. Why? You're gonna take girls to the big book one day. I'm like, are you? insane like I can't even read right now like nobody is asking me for directions to the store like this is never going to happen she's like just write it down she saved my life because when she took me through this book it took me through the steps and it saved my life and I'll tell you how that happened I would also like you to know that after she took me through one through nine she stopped taking me through and I would copy her big book while she was doing something else in the other room. And because I was so hungry for the solution and there was no one around offering it and I wanted it so badly. So the way I talk to my girls about the steps, I'm a visual person. One of my sponsors talks about the plumber's pipe and he said, I need to find my own analogy that makes it really clear to explain to the girls why. So I picture myself in a burning room and I always tell them it's like a frat house or like a crack house, like, like the same room, like the couch with like masking tape and like dried liquid and bong water and smoke and pizza boxes and cartons and full ashtrays and 
nasty, like black, like posters, and it's disgusting, and it's fully smoke everywhere because it's on fire. And I hear the sirens that are outside that want to help me, and they cannot access where I am sitting in this burning room because there's a door and a long, skinny hallway. And in that long, skinny hallway, I have personally carried with me since I was a very little girl because I have a lot of stuff I carried around with me all the stories of why you should feel bad for me, of all the horrible things that happened, of all the really mean things that boyfriends said, and all the bad experiences I had, and all the resentments and selfishness and dishonesty. They were like bags and mattresses and boxes and empty, just junk. And I piled it up like a hoarder so nobody could get to me. And the problem is when I do that, no one can get to me. And I can't get out to anyone and I can't feel anything. And so I say to the girl that step one is sitting on that couch in that room and knowing that I'm going to die in this room if I don't do anything, that I have no way out. And for me, step one is the physical allergy, the mental obsession. I'm beyond human aid. There's nothing I can do. Step one is the nail in the coffin. It's the last nail in the coffin. There's no hope in step one. It is just basic death. And I can know step one in the bar, in the crack house, in the morgue. I, step one is useless information if I don't continue to step two. Step two is taking that chair, breaking open the door, starting to pull out that junk and tunneling my way through so the paramedics and fire people can rescue me and I can get out and I can breathe again. This hallway is my connection between me and my higher power. And the reason why when you say to me in your loving, kind voice, well-meaning, let us love you, Carly, until we, you can love yourself, and I think you're lame, is because my heart is blocked off. When, when bad things happen to people, I knew I was supposed to feel sad, but I didn't. I felt like a psychopath because I had no feelings, because nothing could get to me because of how I created my life. So step two is believing that if I break open the door and I start pulling things out and do something I've never done, which is let somebody help me, that I'm going to be okay and that there is another way. Step two has nothing to do with me understanding who my higher power is and what our relationship looks like. All it is is a belief that if I do this work on the other side might be something more powerful than what I have. That's it. It's a realization. So one is my problem, two is my solution, and I'm still dead in the room with both of those pieces of information. Step three is making the decision to take the chair and break open the door. And that decision is awesome, but I don't need to go to a meeting once a week and a third step meeting and discuss that decision every week for a year. I don't need to be on the third step for six months. I don't need to be on the third step for more than five minutes. It's a decision. Do I want to die an alcoholic death or do I want to live a different life? What do you want? And the decision is fine, but if you want to do this other life, you have to do a lot of work. And what the people said to me was, we will help you organize the stuff you pull out, and we will tell you how to distribute it and how to get rid of it, but you have to pull it out. And you have to walk through that hallway for the first time on your own. We're going to be here, and we'll shout to you and tell you what to do when you get scared, but it's your job to do the work. And that's what four through nine is. So four through nine is the first time the big cleaning out of the hallway, the massive life-saving die in this room or live out in oxygen. And so four through nine is inventory. It's sitting with a sponsor who knows how to do it. 
I want to make this really clear because I am a student of the big book. I love the big book. It is the only book in the entire world that I follow the complete directions for. The only one. Even though I know that it gives me really good results to follow directions, I still don't do it in any other area of my life. But this book, did, it saved my life. And so in this book, it tells me that I want to do this with someone who knows what they're doing. I want to do this with someone who can guide me through that. And so four through nine, I do one time. And I take an hour after I go through that inventory with my sponsor and she helps me or he helps me or whoever I'm working with realize that my problem isn't this one situation that I keep talking about. My problem is how I've thought about it and replayed it and rechanged it and talked about it and forgotten about this part and forgotten about that part and only looked at this part. And basically my real problem is me. And that was not freeing. I did not walk away from my fifth set feeling light and angelic. I walked away feeling like, I'm screwed because I have a lot of problems and they're all mine. But then someone told me that's awesome because you have all the problems and they're all yours and you can fix them with these steps. And so I went home and I did the hour and then I sat and I was quiet and I said, I don't want to live like this anymore. When I talk about six and seven, I always share the story because it really makes sense to me. Six and seven is something I do one time when I'm in that hallway, but it's a principle and a spiritual tool that I'm going to use in my spiritual toolkit in 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of my life. So six is about being ready and showing God I'm ready to remove all the things that are blocking me. God's going to remove them. Carly can't. And seven is saying, please take these. I was a restaurant server for six years in a lot of restaurants. My favorite restaurant I worked at was Fire at Shaker Square. It was awesome. Mm. It's a nice restaurant, so they don't just like, it's not like one of those restaurants where you like order an appetizer, a meal, and a dessert, and like all the plates are there for like the whole meal. Like that's gross. It's a restaurant where you take away one plate, and then you clean up the area, and the person waits for the next plate to be delivered. God is like a good server to me. And God walks by my table just like a good server walks by a table, does not need to say a word to the, the diner, and doesn't say, sir, are you done eating? They walk by and they see there's signs that we give. We either push the plate away, we put our napkin down, or our silverware down. It's clear action that I can show my higher power when I'm ready to let go of something. So here's an example. When I got sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was dying in alcoholic death, full-blown late-stage alcoholism. I could barely continue, and I didn't even know what 20 looked like. I had no dreams and no life. As soon as I found out that I had a fatal malady, I wanted to start dating in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know any other brain cancer that is diagnosed, and the first question out of the patient's mouth is, when can I start dating, right? (laughs) But we do, and I did, and... Every guy in AA that was brand new with tattoos, I wanted to have something to do with. And what happened was I didn't understand why I wasn't meeting my soulmate. And I would be like, where is he? And the women were like, Carly, you've got a bad picker. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And they said, you settle for a dime when you could have a dollar down the road. And I was like, I don't even even know what you guys are talking about. Someone talk straight to me. And they said... You need to get a better relationship with God if you want to have a good relationship with a man. Good mo- bad motives in AA get you good results. So I worked on getting closer to God by letting go of all these new sick guys and focusing on new sick girls. And as I was done leaving the new sick guys alone and focusing on working in the book with the new sick girls, 
God removed from me, saw that that plate was finally ready to get picked up. And God was like, oh, you're no longer attracted to sick, dying people. That's awesome. Like, leave them alone. And took that plate away. And I, I no longer look at new guys in AA with anything other than you should talk to Josh or you should talk to Kevin or you should talk to Benjamin. Like, that's it. That's like as far as I go. Um, back six and seven is how am I showing my higher power that I'm ready to have this removed? And that's something I use in my daily life today, in my spiritual work, 10, 11, and 12 today, is I don't want to be like this anymore. So what do I need to do to show God I'm ready? How am I going to show God I'm ready to be free of this? What's it going to look like? How is God going to know I'm ready? So eight and nine is basically just this. Me and my sponsor pulled everything out. She and I went through everything. We boxed everything up, labeled it up from floor to ceiling against the wall. And you can like just get through like this much, but just enough so you can start to feel some oxygen and some God. And all nine is, is me and the sponsor, please with the sponsor, because I didn't for some of them and that did not go real well, is taking each box out. Oh, this box says mom. This is how you need to go take care of your amends with your mom. And as I take care of each amend, another box is removed out of the hallway because the goal of the inventory and amends process is to get myself unblocked from my higher power on the other side. And the amends is the only way I can become unblocked, right? Here's where Kevin comes in. Okay, so I'm 13 years sober, right? This is six years ago, December 28th. I have three kids all of a sudden, and um, that didn't happen all of a sudden, but it felt like that. Um, I've got, I like went to college, I got my master's, I lived in a bunch of different places, I've lived in all these different places, I came back to Cleveland, I'm sponsoring a bunch of women, um, this is how I sponsor women, I take them through the book every week, I love the big book, it saved my life, um, I have no sponsor that's talking to me about steps at all, I tell whoever is my day of the month sponsor, um, it's time for me to do a four step, I'm feeling really uncomfortable, every about year and a half. I don't do a 10-step because I thought the 10-step is like when you really mess up, you just call your sponsor and you're like, I, I think I hurt that person's feelings. I should probably say I'm sorry. And then you call them up and you're like, I'm sorry. That's not the 10-step. I didn't know what a 10-step was. Um, my 11-step was, I did a third of the 11-step, which was the only the night portion, which is I did the nightly inventory. So every night, I mess up all day. Every night, I would say, oh, God, I really messed up. And then tomorrow, I'm not going to do anything about it. And then I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And then I would just... Basically just drop cereal and soup and pasta and bags and boxes and laundry in my hallway. And then every year I'd be like, it's really hard to walk in here. I need to do an inventory. And so I would tell whatever sponsor I was working with. Then I'm chairing Northeast. Kevin is my lead, December 28th. And he calls me before the meeting and says, just so you know, I'm leading. And I want you to remember that I'm going to be there. I was like, okay. Um, We've never actually met. We talked on the phone. And he led, Benjamin was there, and the top of my head blew off. Because he started talking about step 10, and I was like, wait a minute. I don't even know what, you got, what you're talking about, but I'm not doing that. I don't even know what that is, but that's, the re that's why I'm still in so much discomfort. That's why I don't ever feel okay. Because I'm walking around with resentment and fear and dishonesty and selfishness every single day. And I'm saying the serenity prayer and it doesn't go away. And I went up to him after and I said, where's your home group? And he's like, the oldest meeting in the entire world. And I was like, where's that? He's like, 10 minutes away. I was like, what? 
And I, that was Friday night. I showed up at Borton and I was like, you need to be my sponsor. And for three weeks, he was my sponsor until a rumor went around in Cleveland Heights AA that we were sleeping together. And because I, I have female parts and he has male parts. And he's like, Carly, I can't work with you because I can't be effective in Alcoholics Anonymous if people think that I'm doing this. And clearly we're not. Um, but I can't work with you. And I'm like, Kevin, there's no one else. I'm sponsoring the only women that are in the book. Tell me who else. And he couldn't come up with anybody. So I followed him to every single meeting he went to. And me and Jack and Josh would fight in parking lots for a year and a half. And what, during that, those fights, he showed me how to do this work. And it's completely changed my sobriety. It's completely changed how I sponsor. It's completely altered every aspect of my entire life. And I'll share that with you now. And then I'll stop talking. So if the real goal is to keep my hallway unblocked so me and my higher power can be in direct communication so I can get guidance, intuition, so I can be useful and clean and do my best in this world, then I have to have a daily program where I can keep this hallway clean. I can't afford to wait a year and a half. It's exhausting and I don't like that kind of life. So Kevin showed me in, there's like a part in the book that talks about this. I didn't know that they had it in there, but it was on 84. Um, and I'm going to take you through what happens. So at meetings when we hear people read the nine step promises, which are so beautiful and so confusing because they're only one teeny aspect of what happens when I do one through nine and continue to do 10, 11, and 12, they also don't tell you that they get completely taken away from me if I stop doing the daily inventory prayer and meditation work and helping other people. And the book tells me on 84, after they read those promises, Bill W. says, are these extravagant promises? Are we, are we asking too much? And the first 100 men and women say, we think not. They're being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And it says they will always materialize if we work for them. And they tell me that this thought, the thought that I have to work for them, is what's going to take me to the next step. So this is what step 10 is. Step 10 is a pocket knife that I could keep with me all day long to help me inventory, pray, um, clear away my path, meditate, and make things right and reach out to others. I can do it all day long, which is what I learned how to do in four through nine. I get to do everywhere. So lucky for you, I mess up all the time, and I get to share one of my beautiful inventories with you right now, and I got to make amends to a human today, and I don't normally have to do that. Um, because of Zep 10, most of the time I do an amends after I'm mad, before I make a, a fool of myself. Um, this year, after six years of doing them, I finally started to learn to pause in the middle of a fight with my husband and say, can you hold on? I need to go do a 10 step. I did that three times so far. That was awesome. Um, he appreciated it because I'm not fun to fight with. And... The other time we do a 10 step is after we've messed something up. So that's what happened today. I don't feel well. I've been sick and I'm overwhelmed and it's stressful at work. I get to work at my parents' pharmacy and I get to work next to my dad. So here's me, here's my dad. It's not, there's not even a cubicle, okay? So me and my dad, we have a very special relationship and he and I are exhausting to be around. We're so, there's a lot of similarities that don't work real well together, and there's a lot of positives that do, and it's really intense. And he feels very comfortable communicating to me when he, I do something wrong. And 
Normally, I try really hard to, to just shut up. And this day, I forgot to pause. And when he was telling me something that was very uncomfortable in the middle of a call to one of his patients, I was like, I didn't behave well. And when the patient was off the phone and I took care of that, I loudly said, this is ridiculous and this isn't working and you only talk to me like this and you don't talk to anybody else and I have to go do big book. And I like went across the street to Phoenix and, and then before I left, I was like, that was wrong of me to talk to you like that because I knew I had to go do big book. And so like the whole deal was I couldn't go do big book and not have made amends to my father for behaving poorly. So the problem when you work with other people is you have to behave. So I looked at him and I said, I, I was out of line. I'm so sorry, I'm stressed out and I'll do better. And he was like, yeah, yeah. Like he doesn't even hear anything when I speak. And I went to do big book and it was awesome. And a woman was upset with me and the girls I was doing big book with because we were talking in the coffee shop. And I got to model for the new girl, like how to not respond the way you want to to people in society. And when the meeting was over, I contacted my dad to further make that amends, to really clarify that. And because my dad is my dad, he like surried his response and it was hysterical and inappropriate and he didn't mean to say any of the things he said. And we had a laugh and it was good. And I tell you this because the mistakes are where I learned, but this is a 10 step. Was I resentful? Yes. I was rethinking and refeeling the way he always talks to me. He doesn't talk like this to anyone else. I'm sick of being next to him. Can, there's, can there be somewhere else that we can sit? So I'm resentful. <laughs> Am I afraid? Yes. I hate making amends to him. I hate it so much. I want someone to remove my voice box, which they did yesterday, so I don't have to talk, so I don't have to make an amends. Okay. Am I being dishonest? Yes. I have tools. I'm able to not talk. I've had many opportunities where I didn't talk before when I wanted to, and I don't have a condition where I can't control myself, so I am being dishonest that this is something that is out of my control. Am I being selfish? Yes, because he is watching me, and my uncle who sits on the other side is watching me, and my brother who's over here is watching me, and then all the other people who work with me are watching me, and then all my sponsors are watching me, and then whoever I share my stuff with is watching me, and I don't know who else is watching me. So it's selfish because I am asking my father to behave in a way that he's never, ever, ever behaved, and that's dishonest and crazy. So that's the fourth step. The fifth step is I normally do that in a text message. I did it to the girls I was working with because I couldn't do big work without doing that, and I'm doing it to you right now. That's four and five. Six and seven is do I want to be free of this? In the hallway is my dad, and I say to God, please take my dad out of my hallway. I love him, but I don't want him in the hallway in between me and you. Please help me behave better, and God takes my dad. And then I say to God, I want to change. What can I change? Do I own amends? Yes, I made the amends. What else can I change? Kevin taught me this awesome little word called beep, which is spelled improperly. It's B-E-A-P, and it's breathe. I can breathe. I can change my expectations. I can expect tomorrow, when we're sitting next to each other, that he's also going to comment, just so God can see if I'm ready to learn this lesson. And I get the opportunity to either respond back to him the way I would like to that doesn't feel good and I make amends for, or I can say, thank you, Father, for that information. 
appreciate all of your wisdom. And then I can go on. And I can send an inventory to Sarah and Kevin on my email and move on. A is my attitude. I get to change my attitude and I get to be free today and I get to be gentle and I get to be an example. And P is my perspective. And for the last 100 days, my perspective has been Kaylee, Mooney, and Kevin. And so that's all I have to think about. And I'm like, oh, I'll take all my problems in a second. And the last part of 10 step is others. And I reach out to the girls I was working with. I'm going to finish this up. So that's 10. 11, I start my day every morning at a time I don't want to start it at because I, I found that I cannot do my meditation and my reading when my kids are around. So me and my dog sit with coffee and guided meditation for 10 minutes. Um, and I read two pages out of the big book to keep it new every day. And I read 86 or 88 because that's what the directions for how to live my day are for the 11 step in the morning. Just to be really clear, my goal when I sit and meditate is not to reach all of the answers in the world. My goal is to say to my higher power, this relationship is so sacred that I am willing to get up when I'm tired and I'm willing to get up and sit with you even though 87% of the time, all I hear is my head. And most of the time, I'm just here just so I can tell you I did this. But I'm here for spiritual obedience. And at the end of it isn't Nirvana at the end of it is me saying this matters so much I'm going to show my higher power and myself that this matters and the real reason for the rest of my life why I do step 11 in the morning is because four hours after one of my best friends left the worst place on earth he called me crying and we did the 11 step together and I said to my girls no one for the rest of their life has a reason or an excuse for why they cannot get out of bed and cannot make the time to do the 11 step. I talk to God throughout the day when I remember, and at the end of the night, I do that nightly inventory to make sure I didn't miss anything. And the last step is 12, which is something I can't even separate out anymore to, oh, now I'm doing step 12, and now I'm not. My life is step 12. Um, there is no area of my life that isn't AA. My kids know your stuff. My kids trust you guys because the mother that I'm becoming for them is only because of you guys. Um, the only reason why I'm employed is because of AA. The only reason why I have connections in my life, where I, why I have love, why I have meaning, is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I'm just going to end with this. My favorite promise in the whole book. It's on page 14 and 15. The two people that I mentioned in this room tonight are my two closest people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're both going through their own personal hells. And I, I've gone through my own personal hell, and I know for a fact that I will go through more. The big book says on the bottom of 14, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, which I can't have a spiritual life if I haven't cleared out that hallway for the first time. So they're talking about 10, 11, and 12. Through work, which is 10 and 11, and self-sacrifice, which is 12, for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says the trials and low spots are certain, and it also tells me they're ahead. So even the ones that I've walked through already, there's more. And the book says, if I don't do this work, I will drink again, and if I drink, I'll die. And it says, then faith would be dead indeed. And these two people that are in my life that I am so thankful for live this promise more than anybody that I've ever met. I have so many beautiful examples in my life of what to do 
when it's really hard, right? And I'm so grateful for the men and women here who are constantly showing up when we don't want to and when it's really hard because the people that are still here that were here when I got sober, I can count on one hand. Um, I'm so grateful for you guys tonight. Let's see that our father. Thank you um, for stepping up tonight and, and uh, taking a room of Alcoholics Anonymous through the essence of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps. And to me, that's, that's the core of everything we're supposed to do here. There is no Alcoholics Anonymous without the 12 steps. I actually pray to God there's no Alcoholics Anonymous without the 12 steps. Um, that just seems horrific. The most especially if there's anybody who's generally <coughs> new in the program or hasn't gotten into the steps of the book yet, you are laying out a very simple um, illustration of the change that occurs through that hallway that's totally blocked off. And that's what we do if we do the work. And if we don't, we don't stay. We just don't. Um, 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> so my, my favorite phrase... Um, they we're actually allowed to invent things, right? We can have original thoughts, and mine is 10, 11, and 12 or die. And I mean that very, very real, and it's about spiritual death. I may, if I drank again, I could live another 50 years physically, but it's about that spiritual death. And if I don't continue to work in 10 and 11 and 12, the book tells me that I will go back to drinking, and to me, that's spiritual death. So we, we do the work because we have to. What I've seen with you in the last five to six years is something that I feel a lot, which is my sobriety is not about me. My sobriety is about you and my wife and my kids and everybody else. Um, and because of that, you own a piece of my sobriety. You are right there with me because I am sober specifically to be of maximum service to my higher power and the people around me. And when we get to that selfless place, um, it's magnetic. Mm. It's pretty spectacular. And it enables us to, you know, show up in those trials and low spots. Mm -hmm. um, when Kaylee was killed uh, 100 days ago, I didn't have a choice. I know you tell me I had a choice. I didn't have a choice. I just, I knew four hours after leaving the hospital after spending three hours with my deceased daughter that I needed to do the 11th step. It was a new sunrise. What was I going to do, right? Um, you got me through that bump, and I feel like I've cried an ocean with you since. Um, I just want you to know how much you mean to me and, and how much you mean to Alcoholics Anonymous. I love you.
Um, I'll open it up to you guys for comments. I'm never going Welcome. Thank you. Don't leave tonight. We'll talk. Uh, my name's Josh, and I am kind of new. Welcome. Most likely, uh, most likely an alcoholic, although it's very hard for me to admit it. Uh, I just 